Let's go uh, to Romans chapter 3. And as we come to this passage, I think I need to qualify that I did not choose this passage for this morning. Uh, We are just preaching through Romans. And so if you're visiting today and you think, man, I mean, Richard knew a bunch of visitors were going to be here, so he's going to preach about sin and come come at us hard. No, that's just where we are in Romans. So uh, I'm not the one that planned it. Maybe God did, so maybe you need to listen uh, if you're already squirming uh, about this passage. But let's look at it. Uh, Romans chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 9. What then, Paul asks, are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. Our great God, I need you this morning in a a very real and present way. Father, I pray that your spirit would take your word and like a skilled surgeon, you would do surgery on our hearts. That you would open the closet doors of pain and sin and rebellion that we locked a long time ago. And thought we'd never have to come back and look at it. Father, I pray that your spirit would come and that you would level us by your word. That we might see that indeed as we sang this morning, you are holy, holy, holy. And we are not. But oh God, as a surgeon cuts, he cuts not for destruction but for healing. So in the face of our sin and in light of our sin, may we see Jesus high and lifted up. May we see the radical nature of your gospel. May we see the hope and the power of the gospel. May we feel that power this morning. May we experience it, O God. Only you can do that. And so, God, would you come by your spirit and do it? I confess my sin. I'm not worthy to be standing up here. It's only by your grace and mercy. I thank you for the blood of Jesus, and it's in that blood that I stand this morning. As I preach this message, O God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and do your work, and lead us to these tables, ready to sup on Christ, ready to take Him in by faith. O God, do that for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Michael Guzzo, a pharmacist in Phoenix, woke up this past Monday and he had had enough. His neighbor's dogs were barking yet again. 
He had warned them time and time and time again, would you do something about those stupid dogs? And the neighbors didn't do anything. And he took a shotgun and he shot his way into their apartment and he killed all four adults and he killed their two dogs. And as he was leaving, 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 a neighbor's dog started barking and he tried to shoot his way into their house. He had had enough. And whereas when we hear stories like that, I think the news wants all of humanity to stand back and go, wow, that's something isolated and weird and something. What's wrong with those people? What's wrong with that guy? Everybody in here should know what's wrong with that guy. Because we've all had neighbors like that. We, we've all lived close to somebody and, and, and their habits or something about them was driving us crazy. It may be the neighbor at work or in the, in, in the little cubicle next door. It may be the person that you pass in your neighborhood. It may be your next door neighbor. Who knows who it is? But we all know what it is to be annoyed. We all know what it is to ask the question, are we better than they? And answer an emphatic yes. I mean, if there is one person on this planet that I am better than, it is they. It's them. He became obsessed with those dogs. He said, if I hear those dogs one more time, I'm losing it. And he did. Since chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul has been making a case that we are all a mess. He starts with Gentiles, and, and he lists a lot of sins. He comes to them and he says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up in a debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and they're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent. And on and on he goes. He says, you want to know what the world is like out there? This is what they're like. And then he hones in in chapter 2 and he starts looking at the Jews and he says, oh, you thought you were off the hook? I don't think so. And he begins listing their sins, and he begins dissecting the sins of the Jews. And then he comes to chapter 3 and verse 9, and he asks the church. He comes in for the kill among God's people. And what does he ask? Are we any better off? And the answer is a resounding no, not at all. Now, why is he asking that question? Because he knows us. He knows that our temptation is to isolate the sins of the people out there. He knows our nature is to isolate the sins of the people who are sitting four rows back. He knows that our nature is to point to anyone, anywhere, other than ourselves, and say, are we better off? You better believe it. And therefore, I'm justified before God. Dear friends, Paul knows us. 
and he wants to free us this morning. He told us in chapter 1 and verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what is it that we must believe to tap into the power of God? The first thing that we must believe is that we are not better. We are not better. And yet the church has believed that it's better. Paul knows our tendency to group up and to cast stones. And he says, you better not do that if you want the power of the gospel to come into your life. So how can we get out of this? How can we stop casting stones to those people out there and behind us and around us? The first thing that we have to understand is that sin is much more than isolated actions, but it's an attitude of our hearts. Sin is more than isolated actions. It's an attitude of the heart. I have seen this time and time again in my my years of walking with Christ, but over the last five years I've seen it oh so prevalently in my life. This church has wrecked my life. It's wrecked it. Because before I worshipped in all white, all middle to upper class churches. Before, I worshipped to ancient hymns. Before, I I, I came to church, I, I heard a sermon, and I left, and I lived in this insulated life. And you've wrecked me. Because in this insulated life, I could have preconceived ideas about those people that live in poverty. I could have preconceived ideas about those people of, of another race and how they worship and how they do church. I could have preconceived ideas about those people who are on the news at night or in jail. And I want you to know that you've wrecked that for me. Because we've lived in relationship and I've understood that the issues of poverty and education and crime and violence and and worship and church is much more complicated than I ever dreamed. And it's wrecked my life. In a good way. You see, dear friends, my story is the story of the church. I tell people all the time, I think downtown church is a product of Richard's repentance. And it is in so many ways. And I think many of you here this morning would say, downtown church is a platform for my personal repentance. Because we need to repent. I mean, how else can you have 3,000 churches in one of the most church church cities in the country and yet be declared the poorest city in the country and one of the most violent? How? If we're not, if we really believe that we are sinful, that we are no better than anyone else, how in the world could we have 3,000 churches and be declared the poorest city in the country? I mean, dear friends, it cannot be so. Paul tells us, or excuse me, Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond cure. I don't propose to understand poverty and education and crime. I don't propose to, 
to have better insight and let me be on city council and I'll fix this city. No, but I can tell you one thing. I understand it a little bit better and I know it's a lot more complicated. Because I have friends now who have been in prison. I have friends now who are in prison. I have friends now that are struggling financially and have for some time, generation after generation. I have friends now who can't read. And you see, my perception has changed in relationship. And you say, how have we allowed Memphis to get the way that it is? It's because we have set a value on people. You see, it's hard for me to just pass by somebody on the street now. Why? Because before I put a value on them as less than me. Do you understand the only way that you can walk by somebody on the street is if you believe that they have lower value than you? Would you pass by your child? Would you pass by your spouse? Would you pass by your family members? Well, maybe some of them. Kidding, kidding. But do you see it? We have placed a value on people, and, and the church today has said those people deserve what they get to some level. But we are doing it right. Look at our lives. Paul says, what then are we to say? And I want you to know that the ESV translation inserted the word Jew. Paul didn't say the word Jew. He said, are we any better off, church? He says, no, not at all, for all of sin, uh, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. What was going on? Why is Paul, he, he has brought this up, this is about the fourth time in three uh, chapters that he's brought up this whole idea of Jew and Greek. Why? Because the Jew and Greeks were living insulated lives from one another. And therefore, by doing so, they, they, they um, allow themselves to have preconceived ideas about the other. And they could get away with passing by. And Paul is saying, no, the equalizer among all humanity is that there is no one righteous, no, not one. The way you worship or don't worship, the way you live or don't live, it doesn't matter. We are all under sin, Paul says. There is no one better than someone else. And that's freedom. If you can but believe it. At the very heart of evil is pride. And it says, I'm better. I'm better than at least one person. I'm better at least than that guy. This is why we all deserve God's wrath. Because God looks down and says, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, your pride makes you worse than the person that you're judging. At the heart of evil is the valuation that we or I am better. And do you, or do you see the distinction here? Go back to the point. At the heart of evil is not action, but attitude. It's because I believe I'm better that I can commit the sins that I commit. Go to Matthew 25 if you have your Bibles this morning. In Matthew 25, uh, we see one of the most piercing Teachings of Jesus. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, 
and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer. Now, this is so interesting. The righteous will answer him and say, oh, yeah, you're right, because we had that one project that week. And and, and yeah, we did that week. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, we did. No. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. You see that the only way that you're going to care for somebody and not even really see it as radical. The only way that you're going to care for somebody different from you and not mark it off your list. Okay, well done today. Good and faithful servant of God. Is if you don't even see it because you're so caught up in this reality that you don't deserve grace and you don't deserve mercy and you're worse than anybody that you did any good for, whether they were in prison, whether they were on the street, whether they were naked, whether they were hungry. I want you to look at the diagram that I passed out to you, the heart that God revives. Proud people versus broken people. And I want you to do something. I want you to take a minute, and I want you to look at the left side. Proud people focus on the failure of others. Have a critical fault-finding spirit. Look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. (laughs) That hurts. Are self-righteous, look down on others, have an independent, self-sufficient spirit, have to prove that they are right, claim rights, have a demanding spirit, are self-protective of their time, their rights, and their reputation. They desire to be served. They desire to be a success. They desire self-advancement. They have a drive to be recognized and appreciated. They're wounded when others are promoted and they are overlooked. They have a subconscious feeling this ministry or church is privileged to have me and my gifts. Think of what they can do for God. They feel confident in how much they know. They're self-conscious. They keep others at arm's length. They're quick to blame others. They're unapproachable and defensive when criticized. They're concerned with being respectable with what others think. They work to protect their own image and reputation. They find it difficult to share their spiritual needs with others. They want to be sure that no one finds out when they have sinned. Their instinct is to cover up. They have a hard time saying, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? They tend to deal in generalities when confessing sin. 
They're concerned about the consequences of their sin. They're remorseful over their sin. Sorry they got found out or caught. They wait for the other to come and ask forgiveness when there is misunderstanding or conflict in a relationship. They compare themselves with others and feel worthy of honor. They're blind to their true heart condition. They don't think they have anything to repent of. They don't think they need revival, but are sure that everyone else does. Where are you? I have a hard time going to other people's functions. You know why? Because I automatically start thinking about how I'd be doing it better. You know how evil that is? You know how wicked that is? The most wicked thing is, most of the time I don't care. I feel totally justified in doing it. Even when I'm confronted. Some of you may have come in here this morning. Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? I get you. I get you. Why is this such a big deal? Paul says something interesting back in chapter 2 and verse 1. In 2, 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, for every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge, and yet you practice the very same thing. Now, Paul is picking up on a teaching of Christ. And when people read the Bible... Much of the time, the pushback on judgment and wrath and hell and all that is this. Well, how can God hold accountable, um, you know, how can God hold a people accountable who have never heard? You ever thought that? What about the innocent native in Africa? What about the innocent East Memphian or Collierville or whatever? Well, guess what? God doesn't judge on the basis of his law. You know what he does? He judges on the basis of their law. Francis Schaeffer put it this way. It's as if all of us are born with a little hidden microphone and tape recorder behind our heads. And we go throughout life and it, it starts taping when we say, man, they ought to. Oh, if they would just. And then at the last day, God's just going to say, you're right. Here are the Ten Commandments. Let's just put those to the side. Here's your recording. Did you live up to your own law? And the answer is, if that is your system of seeking salvation this morning, if you think that you're getting close to God based on your laws of being a good person, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because you can't even live up to your own laws. Why? Because we are all under sin. We're messed up. And then secondly, we see sin is detectable by how we pray, what we say, and where our feet take us. Sin is detectable by how we, how we pray, what we say, and where our feet take us. If you live downtown, you have, there's a common experience that we've all had. We, we, we walk out of, of our, our door, we, we've walked out of a restaurant, and, and someone has come up to us panhandling. Uh, it's a big problem in downtown. Um, now, there's a difference between a panhandler and someone who's homeless and needy. 
Uh, Ray Charles could teach all day on this, and he's taught me the difference <laughs> uh, in a very active and real way. A panhandler is someone who's probably not homeless. Uh, they're making a living asking you for money because they know that you don't want to say no. They know that you're feeling good coming out of that restaurant or the bar, and if you've got a couple of dollars, you can... You can give it. I mean, I mean, how uncomfortable is it to come to a stop sign and somebody's standing there with a sign right in your window? Why is it such an issue? It's an issue because we don't want to appear cheap. And yet, one day I was downtown and, and a panhandler came up to me and I, I didn't have any cash on me. And I told him that. He said, well, guess what? There's an ATM machine right around here. You want to talk about rage, that you arrogant, I mean, why did that get me? Because none of us want to be in relationship with someone who's just taken advantage of us. Haven't we all been in those relationships? If you've been in a relationship, you've been taken advantage of. Because we all take advantage of somebody. We probably all take advantage of everybody. Paul tells us that we just don't get it. He says, no one righteous. There's no one righteous. No, not one. And then he says this. There's no one who understands and there's no one who seeks God. Now, I want you to know that these verses, 11, 12 uh, through 18, are, uh, you won't find this, this stream of verses in one place. But what Paul has done is he's gone to the Psalms and he's gone to Isaiah and he's gone to Ecclesiastes and he's pieced these, uh, these verses together to make a point. And so you take the first one, there's no one, um, uh, no one, what does he say? None are righteous, no, not one. Then there's no one who understands. In other words, there's nobody that really understands that there's no one righteous. And, and the very root in how we're unrighteous is the fact that we don't seek God. Now, when you hear that and when you read that, you say, well, that's crazy. Everybody's seeking God. I mean, all the world religions, is saying, everybody's seeking God. Notice he didn't say no one is seeking things from God. He didn't say no one is seeking to get God's attention by their works. He just said no one is willing to come to God for God. That no one is willing to just come and shut up and say, God, you tell me about you. No one is willing to stand before him. Why? Because we are afraid, we're scared to death at the very core of who we are, that if we really find out who God is, he's going to reject us. And so we've got to make God into an image after our own likeness. Somebody we can manage, somebody we can control, somebody we can define, and we can piece little pieces of history, and we can take little quotes, and we can do our own theology, theology according to Richard or whoever. And we can say, oh yeah, this is God. But we won't just come and shut up and say, speak to me, O God, from your word, and let, let me allow you to be who you are. Let me receive you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Let me worship you in dependence upon your Spirit. Let me glorify you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and at the end of the day, ask you to do nothing for me. Let my joy be you, not what you do for me. And do you understand, dear friends, that if you just simply look at the last week 
you can determine that you are the biggest panhandler on the planet. That Richard is the biggest panhandler in downtown Memphis. Because if you look at my prayer life, I have not just enjoyed God for God. I've said, oh God, come. Please let Sunday morning go, work, go well. Let there be enough seats. Let the screen, let him fight, let the screen come in. Oh God, let... But did I just shut up before God and say, God, you are God and that's all there is. And that's all I need. Who cares about the screen? Who cares about Matta Station? Who cares if we're out in that grass? You are God and you are all I need. You are my peace. You are my righteousness. You are my comfort. You are my wealth. You are my beauty. You are my image. You are everything. Dear friends, we are panhandlers. And that's what Paul is saying. No one seeks God for God. He seek, he, we seek God for what we can get from God. So much of our attention is on how we treat each other, and rightly so. But something that has just struck me this week, this question that it just been coming at me, Richard, how do you treat God? Okay, forget about your neighbor for a minute. That's a big one. It's number two. But the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How have you treated God this week? Wow. If God were your neighbor next door, what would he say about you? No one seeks God. We seek stuff from God. But secondly, how do you use your words? Their throat is an open grave. Ugh. You ever smell dead stuff? He's saying, you got bad breath, church. All you do, you open your mouth and you, whoa! They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. I used to love that word. When, when a preacher would read that in church, he used to love that word, asp. I don't know why. It just means a snake, okay, a venomous snake. I don't think we have any asps walking around today or crawling around today. Rattlesnake would probably be better for the South. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They're just always complaining. Woe is me. If you just listen to what they say, there's no sense that they have a Heavenly Father that loves them. If you just listen to their conversation, there's no sense that they believe that God can do the impossible. If you just listen to how they talk, there's nothing in their speech. There's nothing that's encouraging. There's no life in their words. It's just death and death and death. Even in a prayer meeting, they're pouring out all your, oh gosh, that guy's life is horrible. Billy and Ruth Graham's son, uh, Tillian Chavigian, I probably butchered his name. I tried. He was an extremely rebellious son. And at age 16, Billy and Ruth Graham kicked their son out of the house. Do you know that? I didn't know that. Well, he's written a book, and I highly recommend it. Um, it, um, It's called One Way Love, Inexhaustible Grace for an Exhausted World. Excellent. One Way Love. Uh, We're starting to read it as a staff. He talks about during that time when he was out, he said for about two or three years, he was just sleeping at different friends' house. And uh, he was doing different jobs, and, you know, one day he got a job, or he, he lost another job. He went through a ton of jobs. And he called his dad and said, Dad, I need to pay my rent. 
and his dad, Billy Graham, met him for lunch and, and sat down, and he handed him a check that was signed, and he said, Son, just write it for what you need. He said after that, he started breaking into his parents' house. They traveled a lot. So he would break into their house, and he knew where they kept the checkbook, and he would take the check, and he became a master of, of forging Billy Graham, his father's um, signature. He said years later in a conversation, his dad admitted that he knew he was doing it, obviously. I mean, surely Billy Graham balanced his checkbook at some point. And his son said, that was really the start of me coming back home. You see, that's how God, that's how we treat God. He blesses us beyond anything we deserve, every one of us in this room. And yet, we complain and we criticize. Do you bring life to people? I love what Jesus said. I don't love it, but it's very descriptive what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder, but i tell you this. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Friends, how we use our words is important. And it's a detector of how we view God. And then also he says our feet are swift to shed blood. And I wrestled with this one this week. I I thought, how in the world... Can this be accurate for us? Because this is talking about people that, that, that do violent things, that rush to somebody else and take them out. But guess what? That is what he's talking about, but that's not all he's talking about. As I started thinking about Memphis, and I started thinking about where have our feet taken us? During integration, where did the feet of church people take them? to the heart of the problem, to fight for the schools, to, 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 to fight prejudice and racism. No! The feet of the people of God took them away from the city. And we're still running. The feet of the people of God said, get us and our precious little children away from the violence and from those people and let's get out of here. How in the world could we walk away from the educational system and, 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 and from the heart of the city if our feet weren't carrying us away saying, we don't care what happens to them, we care what happens to us. And there's bloodshed in the city, and we blame the city council. Our schools are falling apart or trouble. Maybe that's a exaggeration. Our schools aren't falling apart. Our schools are troubled. And we blame the school board. And you think God's blaming the school board, church? No. You think God is blaming the police department for the crime in the city? No. Do you think God is, is, do you get it? Where have our feet taken us? It's time to walk back. And so the law is there 
to shut us up. You feel shut up this morning? The law's job, thirdly, is not to make you feel better about you. What makes you feel better about you is Jesus. Julian Chavidian talks in that book about two people that came, two of his parents' friends that came after him when he was in his rebellion. And he said, the first one called and said, hey, can I take you to lunch? He said, well, I needed a lunch, and so I went. And he sat down, and the guy just gave him the, read him the riot, riot act. You are Billy Graham's son. You are turning your, your face against, you know, this godless or godly heritage. You know, you are embarrassing your family. You're bringing, sh- I mean, just... He said, after two words, I finished my lunch, didn't listen to a word he said. But then he said, I got another call from another friend. And I was such, in such a desperate situation, I went to the lunch and I sat down. He said, he blew me away. He said, you know, I understand that you're going through a hard time. And I just want you to know that I love you. And if you ever need anybody to talk to at any time of the day, here's my number, call me. If you need to tell somebody things that you've told nobody else and you know it'll just be between us, here's my number. And Chavidian says this. He said, it didn't happen immediately, but that demonstration of unconditional grace was the beginning of God doing a miraculous work in my heart and life. I'm simply saying, I am here for you. You know... Chris preached a couple weeks ago about the kindness and grace of God, where Paul says the kindness of God is to lead us to repentance. He details in the first three chapters of how sinful we are as a people. And then we say, where is God? You know where God is? He is loving us with his kindness. Do, do we deserve judgment? Do we deserve to be zapped? Yes. But do you know what he's doing? He's doing what this friend did for, for Billy Graham's son. He sits down with us this morning and he says, the table is set for a feast. Here it is. Oh God, but I deserve judgment. Yeah, but I don't bring judgment. I bring salvation. I bring my body and my blood. And I say, come to the tables and eat. You see, here's the beautiful thing. The bad news of these verses is, No one seeks God, but do you know the good news of these verses? Then what that must mean is that God seeks you. If you're a believer here this morning, it is not because you did anything. Because you didn't seek God and you're not seeking God. God is seeking you. The God of heaven and earth wants to come and to set a table for you and say, come and dine with me. The God of heaven and earth who knows every single thing you've ever done and will do says, come and eat. This is not something that Chris and myself and Rick and Michael and sat in the office and said, oh, what would be cool for worship? Oh, I know. Let's get some bread and some wine. This is the Lord's table because he said, this is how I want you to think of me in your sin. Come and eat with me. You're not that kind of parent. You're not that kind of friend, but you have that kind of God. I know what you did. Come eat with me. I know what you're going to do tonight. Come eat with me. He's not standing up here saying, oh, make some resolutions. Say, okay, I'm getting back in the church groove, and I'm going to stop doing this, and I'm going to to quit sleeping around. He's saying, shut up. Yes, you will. If not physically in your head and in your heart. So shut up. 
Don't bring me your goodness. Just bring me you. And let me clean you up. (laughs) Because I've done something for you. I have justified you through my broken body, my shed blood. Come and eat and drink. Come empty-handed. Because no one seeks God, but God seeks His people. And He's doing that this morning. And the fact that He's not raining down wrath on His church is evidence of His kindness. Because He knows what a messed up lot we are. And He says, come to the table. So dear friends, let's come to the table and let's feast today. Let's feast. Amen. Father, we rejoice that you're a God like that. That you're a God that invites us to the table. That you say, come, and you know us. You know everything we've done. You know every resolution that we've made this morning we're going to break. And you just say, come and rest in me. And we thank you this morning. Thank you for these tables because they're yours. Move us to come and eat. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Prepare to come and to feast these tables this morning.